description of your word, of your will and purposes, Lord, through your word for our lives, even as we look to you in faith. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you are from the uh, in semi semiconductor industry, so you would know this. Um, Maurice Chang is the uh, founder of uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TF TSMC. It's the biggest um, manufacturer of uh, semiconductor chips. Um, he started the company relatively late in life, about in the 50s, um, in uh, 1987. Now he's, uh, he's still very healthy, active at uh, the age of 92 years old. Uh, but in uh, 1980, he came across a textbook. He was already a working professional in the semiconductor industry, but he came across a textbook called uh, Introduction to uh, VLSI System. Some of you are from that industry. You know what I'm talking about. But essentially, um, it is a, a, it's a textbook, undergraduate textbook, that talks about how you build these tiny, tiny circuits on the microprocessor chip. At that point, towards the late um, well, 70s to the late mid to the late 70s, you had about maybe a few thousands of these small little switches or, or uh, devices on a chip. And at that time, um, companies would take a lot of time and effort to design what that chip is supposed to do, um, but also design and build that chip itself. Very complex, very time-consuming um, process. That textbook basically talks about new methods that you can apply that led eventually to computer programs that help us automate the design of that chip, I mean, a complex microprocessor. So today, um, you have billions of these small switches or devices on a microprocessor chip, the thing that powers your smartphones and your computers and such. Um, the size of the chip today, uh, the transistor device today is it's smaller than the, the COVID virus. I hope you know that, right? It's smaller than the COVID virus. It's that small um, in that chip. But in 1980, um, as Maurice Chang read that textbook, he got a revelation, he got an insight that suggested to him that it is possible for companies to design the chip but outsource the manufacturing of the chip to another company. That was the insight he got. Now, thousands, millions of students would have read that textbook, got that technical knowledge. But Maurice Sheng had that insight, that revelation that suggested to him a new industry was possible. And he, he acted on that insight, that revelation that eventually led to the founding of TSMC, today the largest chip manufacturer. And you have uh, folks like Amazon, Apple, that outsource the production of their CPUs, their microprocessor chips, to TSMC. So knowledge is important, but that needs to translate to insight, revelation, a new way of thinking, a new way of doing things. And you have to act on that insight in order to produce impact or significance. Now, for the Christian, there's only one book, one, the most significant book that brings life to us, and that there's obviously the Bible. In the Bible, we find the revelation of God that brings redemption and life. But the danger is that we don't build deep knowledge of God's Word. And whatever knowledge we have doesn't translate into insight and revelation that actually transform our lives. The Bible is not there for us just to have 
head knowledge, although it is obviously important, it's an important first step to know God's word. But head knowledge must be translated into heart experience through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we will live by faith according to God's word. How do we go through times of testing or trials? How do we not only survive but thrive through that time of testing or trial? Today's passage is about the testing of Jesus in the wilderness and it shows us the critical importance of having the right knowledge of God's word transformed into words of life that brings us through times of difficulty and trials. The big idea today is that God's word bring us through times of testing. Two weeks ago, Pastor Shen preached about the baptism of Jesus from Matthew chapter 3, and there we read in uh, chapter 3, verse 16 to 17, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. At that moment, the heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love with with him, I'm well pleased. The very next verse is in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, where we read, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the, the wilderness temptation happened immediately after the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus received his anointed calling as God's Son. Having received the word of his Father, This is my Son who I love and with whom I'm well pleased, this knowledge of God's word was immediately tested through the wilderness testing, the, the time of trial. And that time of trial served to demonstrate the true nature of, God, uh, of, of Jesus' heart and character. So God's calling leads to challenge, a time of trial, which proves or demonstrates character. Calling, challenge, and character. So, yeah, we, you know, it's good to remember this pattern because as disciples of Christ, we will, work, we will walk through the same path of calling, challenge, and character. This is also the pattern. This pattern has been the experience of God's people through the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, Moses tells Israel about their wilderness testing this way. Remember how the Lord, your God, led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you will keep his commands. God's calling leads to challenge which proves or demonstrates character. And the way in which Jesus would prove his character in a time of trial is to use his knowledge of God's word as revelation to answer the attacks of the enemy. In other words, in the time of testing, Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, used God's word to reveal God's will and purpose for that particular situation in the face of that particular situation Jesus used God's word to reveal God's will and purpose. And Jesus walked in obedience to that word. Jesus defeated 
the attacks of the enemy by his faithful obedience to God's word. And, and, and Satan, the devil, is helpless in the face of persistent, faithful obedience. The devil can cause trouble, but he is helpless in the face of persistent, faithful obedience to God's word. Likewise, in our time of testing, God's spirit brings the revelation of God's word that leads us through the trial as God's word secures our life, God's word shapes our identity, and God's word sharpens our purpose. So first, God's word secures our life. Our security is in the trustworthiness of God's word. Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness testing in a period of intense fasting before God as part of his preparation for his ministry. And one of the key themes of the Gospel of Matthew is how Jesus, as the Messiah, the, the chosen one, the anointed one of God, how Jesus, as the Messiah, represents the nation of Israel. He is the faithful Israelite. He's the faithful Israel before God. Um, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God instructs Moses to tell Pharaoh that this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn. So in that sense, Israel is God's son. And at Jesus' baptism, we saw earlier, Jesus speaks this word over Jesus. God speaks this word over Jesus. This is my son. Where once the nation of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness testing during the time of the Exodus, Jesus now spends 40 days and 40 nights to symbolize the wilderness testing of God's people. In this new exodus, Jesus as the Messiah will be the anointed one who will bring Israel and the nations to the promised land of God's kingdom. Just as the nation of Israel was tested during the wilderness testing to see what was in their hearts, as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 earlier, now the testing of Jesus will prove his heart and character as the true Israel, the faithful son of God. And after that prolonged 40 days, 40 nights of fasting, Jesus, although he was fully God, he is fully God, he is also fully human, and he was hungry and drained after that period of fasting. And this was the precise point of physical need and hunger that the devil came to test Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, we read, The tempter came to him, Jesus, and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, we don't know in what form or shape or manner did the devil appear to Jesus. But because Jesus, uh, but because the devil is the great deceiver, we can be reasonably certain that he, he didn't come uh, with a red costume and a tail and a pitchfork, right? He's, he's not going to do that. The devil could have appeared as a kindly old man in this test, a, a wise and caring old man of the desert. He might have implied to Jesus, look, you are the anointed, you look like an anointed man of God, a true son of God. You have done well in the fasting, but where is the food? That should have been set aside for a man of power such as yourself. Surely the Son of God deserves the right to make food out of stones. 
Surely the man of power is entitled to feed himself. Surely it's not right that bread is denied to the anointed son in the time of his hunger. But what do you think? Was there anything wrong with Jesus using his power to turn stones into bread to satisfy his hunger? Isn't the Son of God endowed with power? What good is power if you can't use it, right? But think about it. What is the purpose of fasting? It is to hunger after God himself. It is to hunger and thirst after God's righteousness. It is to put God above physical needs and to trust in God's providence in all things. More specifically for Jesus, his fasting during the 40 days symbolized his complete devotion to God and his trust in God's providence and provision. This is in contrast to Israel in the Old Testament who failed to trust in God's goodness and provision during their Exodus journey. They complained against God. They questioned God's motives. They put God to the test whenever they felt that their needs were not being met. But Jesus, through his 40-day fast, shows what it means to be the true Israel, the true people of God. Where once Israel failed, now Jesus, God's Messiah, will do in perfect obedience on behalf of all of God's people. This was a redemptive moment. This was God giving his people a second chance through the Messiah, his anointed son, Jesus. What does perfect trust and obedience look like? Well, it looks like refraining from taking matters into one's own hands. It looks like trusting in the time and, trusting in the time and manner of God's provision without acting out of fear or anxiety or from a sense of entitlement. Jesus knew that God has already provided for the needs of his people. Through the first Exodus experience, when the people were in the desert, God provided manna, bread from heaven. They didn't have to work for it. It was an act of grace, of God's provision. And God has always provided for the needs of his people in good times, in times of plenty, in times of famine, in the bad times, through the trials. God's provision or supply never runs out. The question posed by the devil is really about the security, about the security of one's life. Is it about accumulating and exercising power we wish we have or hope to have? To secure ourselves? Or is it about humbly trusting and waiting on God for his provision and supply? Jesus had the power to perform miracles, but he knew that the exercise of power or gifting from God, it is not for personal satisfaction, even for legitimate reasons like self-preservation or survival. In other words, just because you can do something doesn't mean it's right to do it in a particular situation. 
Jesus' sense of security is in the trustworthiness of God's word that promises God's provision. He will not act apart from his father's command or revelation, even if he had to go hungry, until the time of God's provision. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, we read that at the end of the testing, God's provision did come. We read that then, you know, at the end of everything, the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. The original language means ministering angels, angels who brought spiritual and physical support and definitely implies refreshing sustenance for Jesus. So God's word of provision did come true for Jesus at the right time of God's choosing. The temptation is to act apart from God's time or provision. It is to use power without God's authority or command. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, to answer the devil's challenge, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is not wrong to need food, of course. It is not wrong to meet physical needs. But God created man, humans, to be in relationship with him. It's a relationship of submission to God's ways. It is a relationship of trusting dependence on God as the basis of security in life. Money, food, provisions, resources, whatever we need in life, God can supply. But they must come from a position of obedient trust in God's ways and means. The priority of man is to worship and serve his creator God, trusting all the while that God will supply what is needed. The life and security of God's people is not to be found in provisions, riches, and resources themselves, but in the revelation of God, of God's word itself, God revealing his will and purpose through his word for us. And so what would you do if a Christian brother or sister comes to you for advice? I work in an industry where, you know, corruption is the standard practice. So how do I survive? How do I thrive in an industry when maybe, you know, underhand payments, under-the-table payments are the expected norm of business? How can I win projects when my competitors are providing under-the-table payments? Should we take a pragmatic view and say, well, since everybody is doing it, you just have to live with it, they'll go along? A number of years ago, I had a, a conversation with a Christian brother, a, a small business owner. And I was just talking to him about um, what was his plans to expand his business. Seems like he had you know, pretty good thing going. This brother explained to me that um, he and indeed had, he had been approached by uh, potential partners to grow the business. But he felt convicted not to proceed because his, he would mean diluting his, obviously, his control. And he was concerned that he would not be comfortable with certain business practices. If he, if he were the sole owner, he could easily decline to do business that involved you know, practices that he's not comfortable with. But if, you know, if he had business partners, then that would be you know, more complicated. 
So he, he declined business expansion. What does this testimony show us? Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And for this Christian brother, God's word, God's ways have higher priority than business expansion or success. Our first takeaway is where do we place our security? On tangible resources, riches, or positions, or on every word that comes from the mouth of God? Second, God's word shapes our identity. Our identity is established by the sufficiency of God's word. In the first two challenges, the, the devil tested Jesus by saying, if you are the son of God. We recall at the, the baptism of Christ, of Jesus, God the Father said of him, this is my son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And the devil now here forcefully challenges Jesus' self-understanding of what it means to be the son of God. How would he live and act as the Son of God? We saw in the previous point that the devil, first of all, tempts Jesus to use his miraculous power as the Son of God to turn stones into bread without waiting on God. In this second challenge, the, the devil brings Jesus to the highest point uh, of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, again, we don't know exactly how um, the devil brought Jesus to the temple. Was it a physical transplantation or through a vision? We're not sure. But the setting of the temple is an important one. It was believed that one of the functions of the Messiah when he came, the Son of God, is to rebuild the temple of God. And the devil was perhaps subtly telling Jesus, this, is, this temple, this is your home ground. This is the place where you fulfill your destiny. And where else would you enjoy God's protection, God's complete protection and safety in the temple of God? And so now, if you are the, truly the son of God, if you are the Messiah of God, you can do anything and no harm can come to you, especially in this place. You can call on God's protection in this sacred ground. This is your home base. You can even jump off this temple. No harm, surely no harm will come to you. And here the devil quotes from Psalms 91 that God will send his angels to lift you up. He will not let your feet, you know, strike uh, the stones. So under a religious setting, complete with scripture, the devil tries to get Jesus to put God to the test. Would Jesus, as God's son, operating in the most sacred place, God's temple, would Jesus compel God? Would, he, would Jesus force God's hand to protect him no matter what he did? Uh, in Jeremiah 7, in the Old Testament, we see the people of Judah uh, fall into the same temptation. They believed that because the temple was in Jerusalem, they will never suffer God's judgment, nor will they be deprived of God's protection. 
they kept repeating to themselves, this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. So in other words, because the temple is here, we will never be defeated. God will not leave us. They assume that having God's temple with them means automatic protection, regardless of what they did and how they lived. And God answers them in Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, 9 to 10, and God challenges them, would you steal and murder, commit adultery, perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, in the temple which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? So the, the devil uses a subtle temptation to say that if you are the chosen of God, if you are supposedly acting under the authority of the temple or the church or the religious system, you can do whatever you like. You will have God's automatic protection and endorsement. This is putting God to the test. Psalm 91 describes God's protection for those who put their trust in Him. It is not a license to irresponsibly look for danger or to live recklessly and expect God's automatic protection. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, but we are not to misuse or twist God's word to fit our own agenda. And Jesus replied to the devil, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, Jesus says, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It refers to an incident at a place where Moses called Massah and Meribah, recorded for us in Exodus 17. There the people complained to Moses that they were thirsty. They were in a desert, they were thirsty, and they accused Moses uh, of leading them out of Egypt only to die of thirst in, in the desert. God graciously provided water out of the rock for the people to drink, but but Moses knew that the people had tested the Lord. In uh, Exodus 17, verse 7, we read, they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? In their unbelief, despite seeing all that God had done to deliver them from the Egyptians, the people challenged God, is he here or not? Implying, obviously, that if God is with us, why can't he do something already? Right? Why, why are we suffering thirst? So testing the Lord can take many forms. It could be to presume on God's protection, whatever we do. It could be to question God's goodness and provision whenever we run into difficulty. It could be when we express lack of trust and confidence in God's ability to lead us and provide for us. When we challenge God to act according to our own terms and conditions, or else we will take matters into our own hands. I've waited enough for God. I'm going to go my way now. At the heart of testing God is both a lack of understanding and trust in God's ways. Hosea 4 verse 6 says, My people are destroyed. God says, My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. That is the knowledge and understanding of God. In Psalms 95, God says of the wilderness generation, for 40 years I was angry with that generation 
I said they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. If we fail to know and trust God's ways, we can easily go astray with wrong motives, wrong directions, all about misusing or misquoting scripture, or wrongly assuming that we have God's favor or blessings in whatever we do. And when the blessings fails to materialize, we question God's goodness or motives. Friends, this is the downward spiral. The main point of Jesus quoting God's word here is that we do not test boundaries with God. Now, I don't mean that you, you cannot um, boldly and courageously pray, that you cannot honestly wrestle and express your fears, your anxieties, your frustration, your anger before God. That is welcome. We see that in the Psalms. We see that in the prophets. But testing here, the boundaries is something along the lines we don't actually want to obey God, so we're trying to look for loopholes or exceptions or escape clauses just to be at the boundaries, not to just go and not to go over into total disobedience. So we just want to, you know, be at the boundaries. It's like something like, you know, God's word didn't actually say we can't do this, so you know we can do it, right? Or if we're under grace, we can continue sinning. It's small sins, it's harmless fun. At least I'm not continuing. You know, I'm not committing murder, right? It's no harm in my sinful habit. Testing the boundary of God could be, for example, um, God's word says he will provide for us so we can get involved with, you know, these get-rich investment schemes. Surely God wants us to be rich so we can try these get-rich investment schemes and not worry. Or it, what's the boundary to cross for sexual immorality? Can I do this? And would it still be acceptable? If we really want to know God's ways, we will determine and pray, Lord, teach me your will. Show me how to obey and please you completely. We won't try to find loopholes or escape clauses or justify our course of action. Help me, Lord, to, to put aside my personal desires and my ambitions, but teach me, Lord, your ways, that I may walk in them completely. Our identity as God's children is always being challenged by the devil. So our identity as God's children must be shaped by knowing God's heart and God's ways so that we can securely live according to God's will and purpose. Third, God's word sharpens our purpose. Our purpose finds clarity through the revelation of God's word. In the third challenge to Jesus, the devil now drops all pretense. He brings Jesus to a high mountain. Again, we're not quite sure how perhaps this is in a vision. But the devil now comes as one who holds in bondage the kingdoms of the world, the glory of earthly power and worldly success. Now, the devil knows that the Messiah comes to establish God's kingdom. The role of the Son of God is to restore Israel and bring in the nations to God. 
And so the devil offers Jesus the nations if Jesus will bow down to him and worship. Now, at first glance, it might seem strange for the devil to demand or to try to ask Jesus to bow down and worship him. Wouldn't it be, you know, it's far too obvious a temptation to reject. But we have to realize this is about power play in geopolitical terms, in, in, in terms of kingdom making. At that time, it is not uncommon, it's not uncommon for rising chieftains or emerging kings in smaller kingdoms to seek alliances and to give tribute to more powerful kingdoms so that with the strong alliance, smaller kingdom, the smaller kingdom will be able to beat and conquer stronger rivals. And you, you, you kind of seal the alliance by kowtowing to the, to the stronger allies, so to speak, to give tribute. This is a subtle way in which the devil could have approached Jesus. Not to, you know, the devil never says you, you give up God completely. Huh? He didn't say you abandon the worship of God completely. The devil suggests you pay homage and tribute to a potential ally to help Jesus achieve his aims. It could be something along the lines of, Jesus, let me help you. I can be your strongest ally, your powerful sponsor. I can give you access to power over these kingdoms. I can help you win them over. Just accept me as your benefactor, your sponsor. The offer is for Jesus to make an alliance with a powerful kingmaker in this devil to help Jesus fulfill his mission without the need of the humiliating path of suffering and shame of the cross. The cross of suffering, according to the devil, was not necessary. Return for a small gesture of tribute, of bowing and giving worship or service to this powerful ally without needing to abandon completely the worship of the true God. How many would-be messiahs have started with pure intentions only to be seduced by compromises and power alliances that corrupted them later on? But Jesus knew better. Any power or influence apart from God leads to idolatry. His purpose was to save the nations and bring all peoples to God, but a key question is how would he go about achieving his mission? And God's word clarified how Jesus would act. For Jesus, the worship of God is to be absolute. Unlike pagan religions of the day, Scripture says that the Lord is one. Therefore, worship and service to the God of the Bible is to be exclusive without exceptions. God would not brook any rivals to his people's devotion and worship. And this foundational belief of God's people is known as the Shema, found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And because the Lord is only one, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Because of Jesus' unwavering worship and service to God the Father, Jesus will not accept compromises. God's word provided Jesus that singular focus of his life purpose, to serve the will of his Father completely, even if it meant enduring the cross so that all nations can come to God. What are the power structures 
alliances today that tempt us to dilute our worship and devotion to God. Whether it is power politics in the office or what the social media tells us about what to do, how to feel, how to feel successful or accepted. Today, we have many competing powers and influences and ambitions that subtly or directly challenge our singular focus to live completely for God. We may not abandon worshipping God, but very easily we can start to depend or submit ourselves to lifestyles and values that are contrary to God's ways. And God's work sharpens our focus on that one desire of our hearts to live only for God, worship the Lord your God, and serve Him only. In closing, what is it about God's word that brought certainty to Jesus in facing the testing? I mean, we, we face all sorts of troubles. Sometimes we have God's word, but sometimes it doesn't speak to us. But what is it about Jesus' case? Why did God's word bring Jesus certainty in facing the trials? I believe it's because God's word contained for Jesus the assurance of God's unfailing love and the pleasure of a father to his son. Again, we read in Matthew chapter 3, 17, at Jesus' baptism, God the Father spoke this word over him. This is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. Jesus must have felt the love and joy of his father whenever he heard and received God's word for him. So that when Jesus was hungry, he could restrain himself because his security was in his father's provision. That Jesus was secure in his identity as God's son without needing to test his father's love and, and provision over his life. And that ultimately Jesus faced the cross as Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 tells us, Jesus faced and endured the cross for the joy set before him, the joy of living completely for his father of completing everything that the Father gave him to do. If you have believing faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are a child of God in Christ. When you receive and hear God's word, it should not be a word of compulsion or coercion. It must be a word, it must be God's word that convicts and transforms. It must be God's word that brings you assurance and security. Because God's word for you contains the assurance of God's unfailing love, his joy over you as his child. When was the last time we felt God's love and joy for us when we read and receive God's word? If we took only a moment to receive God's love and joy, when he works, his word comes to us, I think we will find security and victory to the trials of life. I think many of us here need to experience God's love and pleasure over us as his children. So that even when God's word corrects us or challenges us 
we will not feel condemned by God's word, but truly loved and restored by the Father heart of God. And so I'd like to close by praying for all of us that when you receive God's word for your life, that, God, that word of God over your life will contain for you the assurance of God's love for you, the assurance of His pleasure over you as His child. We are all weak, right? We make our mistakes. In many ways, we have done wrong. But because of God's grace, when, he works comes, when His word comes over us, even for correction, it contains His unfailing love and His pleasure for us as His child. And if you are able to receive that from God, then you are able to conquer all the trials and all the temptations, all the difficulties out there. And so let's uh, come humbly before the Lord, our God, to receive His word of love and, and joy over us. You can have God's word of love and joy. And if you haven't received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd like to give you this opportunity to open your heart to the Lord Jesus even right now. Father, for those of us here who are opening our hearts to Jesus, I pray for the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we will exercise faith to know that we are saved and loved and forgiven because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us. That because of Jesus on the cross, sin and death no longer has hold over us because your word Lord sets us free your word Lord redeems us and gives us life again and so Lord for those of us who are crying out to you right now I pray that even as we put faith in the Lord Jesus Christ we will know your salvation I pray Lord for my brothers and sisters in Christ for myself that even as we open our hearts to you at this moment we will receive that word that we need from you, that living word that speaks to our hearts, that living word that speaks to the trials and the struggles that we might be going through. I pray, Lord, that that will be a word of life for us, a word of hope, a word of transformation. I pray that even as you impart your word upon our hearts, that we will experience now, Lord, your everlasting love for us, your pleasure, your joy over us as your child. So many times we are unworthy, but Lord, you are merciful. You are a father who never turns his child away. And in that faith and confidence, we come to you just as we are, I pray right now for any one of us here that needs that word of your love, of your joy, of your pleasure, of your assurance. I pray that you impart that living word for us. And in all our struggles and trials, 
we pray that your Holy Spirit will give us revelation of your will and purpose to meet that trial, to meet that challenge, to meet that situation. Grant us that heart of faith to obey your revelation and to walk in obedience to your word for our lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Shall we all rise in response? Let us sing, Thy word is a lamp.